Well, as many of you will know, we are in the midst of a series that we have entitled Hit Singles, uh, a series of sermons on each of the books of the Bible that contains only one chapter. And uh, this morning, we uh, were scheduled to be in 3 John. But what we're going to do is this morning, we're going to inverse that, and we're going to, rather than study the letter of 3 John, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John and chapter 3. I'd like to invite you to turn there with me this morning. John chapter 3. Now, I don't know if there are any passages of Scripture more well-known, more beloved than John chapter 3. I'm sure you can make an argument for texts like Psalm 23, Isaiah 40, Romans 8. But by and large, the cultural awareness of the Bible centers on John chapter 3. And after all, we're a Baptist church, so at every Baptist church, you've got to open John chapter 3 at least once every couple of years or so. And uh, so this morning, that's what we're going to do. Before we read, I want to ask you a very simple question. And that question is this. What is the best news that you heard this week? And you laugh, and it proves my point. It seems to me that if we're honest with ourselves, if you are of one political persuasion, you might be tempted to answer that question incorrectly. Not that I'm saying your views are incorrect. It's not my place. But you might answer that incorrectly by saying the best news that I heard this week came yesterday. For others of us, those who are disappointed, disenfranchised, perhaps even outraged, we might be tempted to answer that question incorrectly by simply folding our arms and saying, good news, what do we need to talk about good news this week? And yet I have the boldness in Christ to ask you yet again, what is the best news that you heard this week? We are good news people, aren't we? That's what gospel means, good news. In the midst of a lost and a dying world, a world that rages, we are the good news people. I can assure you that for the next 30 minutes or so, you will hear nothing from me of red states and blue states. You will hear nothing from me of election fraud or lack thereof. You will not hear the words Democrat or Republican. You will not hear me speak of Donald Trump or Joe Biden, except for just now. What I do intend to talk to you about this morning is a kingdom an everlasting kingdom, a wonderful kingdom, a kingdom ruled by a benevolent king who loves his people with an everlasting and undying love. And I want to invite you through the words of John, the gospel writer, to be a part of this kingdom. I want to tell you of the king and of entrance into his kingdom. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Lord, give us wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good. God is good, and he is sovereign. God is a king, the king, over the greatest kingdom ever known. And it is entry into that kingdom that we want to discuss this morning. See, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, really have a singular theme, and that is entry into the kingdom of God. How does one enter the kingdom of God? That's the question. And what John, the evangelist here, tells us is that the only way that someone, a man or a woman, will enter the kingdom of God is by being born again spiritually, believing that Jesus is the Christ, receiving eternal life from him. You will only enter the kingdom of God if you are born again spiritually, believing that Jesus is the Son of God and having eternal life in him. Now, the structure of this passage is really simple. If, if I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, I have a New Testament scholar in the congregation, so I don't want to pass over this. There's a little bit of dispute about whether um, the words of 3.16 and on are spoken by Jesus or spoken by John, uh, the gospel writer, as a narrator. Uh, I'm going to take it as these are the words of Jesus. And I do that because I do think there's a somewhat simple structure here in this text Nicodemus said to Jesus, Jesus answered. Nicodemus said 
Jesus answered. And then a third time, Nicodemus said, Jesus answered. And in the first instance, verses 1 through 3, we're told that being born again is necessary. It must happen. It's non-negotiable. Number 2, verses 4 to 8, that being born again is a work of the Spirit. Verses 4 to 8. And then finally, being born again is connected with the Son. Verses 9 to 21. Jesus, or Nicodemus said, Jesus answered. I want to just dive right in. Being born again is necessary. Friends, it's not optional. It is a prerequisite for entry into the kingdom of God. Only certain people enter into his kingdom, and those people are those who have been born again. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what you need to know is that there is no such thing as disinterested observation of history. No historical writer writes without an angle. And the best writers of history tell us exactly what their angle and perspective is. John does that at the end of his gospel in chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31, he tells us that his whole book really is about signs that Jesus has done. You might like to think of them as certificates of authenticity to the identity of Jesus, things that only the Son of God could do, so that in seeing those signs, we might believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, the Son of God and the Christ, and that by believing in him, we'll have life in his name. In chapter 2, John presents the first sign, the turning of water uh, into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And at the end of chapter 2, he presents a group of people sort of being um, uh, enamored with Jesus because of the signs. The signs are beginning to accomplish their work. And certainly that's true in the life of Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus and says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because no one could do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. Nicodemus said. Now, what I love about what Jesus does here as he answers is he essentially says, don't let's waste one another's time. There's no use in small talk. There's no use in beating around the bush. It's brass tacks. It's straight to the point. It's right to the issue. What you and I need to talk about, Nicodemus, is not your ability to assess who I am naturally. What we need to talk about, Nicodemus, is the necessity of you being born again. You see, that, that's exactly what Jesus says. Truly, truly. Amen, amen. This is something you can count on. This is something you can bet your life on. I'm telling you, Nicodemus. If our brother Kendall was here, he's at home, staying safe and staying healthy. He would say, paraphrasing, I'm not going to hold you. I'm not going to lie to you. This is truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't enter it. You can't be a part of it, even though you were made to do so. One of the best uh, biblical theologians of the day is an Australian man by the name of Graham Goldsworthy. And he describes the kingdom of God. He defines it as God's people in God's place under God's rule. 
You think about Adam and Eve in the, the Garden of Eden. They were God's people. God had made them. Made them after in his own image. They were in God's place, the Garden of Eden, a, a wonderful, lush paradise of pleasure. And they were under God's loving rule. One command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were God's people in God's place under God's rule. And I want you to know this morning that no matter whether you believe in Jesus yet or not, you were created to be a part of God's kingdom. That's what humanity was made for. But you know, if you know anything of the Bible story, that Adam and Eve, they sinned. They broke the one commandment that God gave them. And ever since then, every son of Adam and daughter of Eve, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, has done the exact same thing. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We don't do the things that we were made to do. The other, the other week, Henry and I were playing with, he has these remote control tanks that he got for Christmas uh, a year or two ago. And they're the, these big tanks that you control with remotes and they drive around and they, they shoot at one another and somehow their lasers interact with one another and so you can tell who's won in the, the tank battle. And, I was putting a pretty, a pretty uh, handy spanking on him uh, in that, and I was getting pretty excited about myself till I realized the reason I was winning was that the batteries in his remote weren't working. And so that's how good I am at that kind of thing. I need a handicap to beat a seven-year-old uh, child. But, you know, it wasn't like Henry could get the tank to work properly by pressing the buttons harder. It wasn't as though he could just sort of wiggle the joystick more fervently and passionately to get the tank to work. No, the only thing that could be done for the remote is for the dead battery to be pulled out and a fresh battery to be put in so that finally, because of that transformation, the tank would do the very thing it was made to do. And friends, that's how each and every one of us are. Our situation is so dire that it's not as though if God shouts his commandments at us more loudly, if we hear the commandments of God given to us more convincingly, that somehow or another we're going to begin obeying. No, we are broken fundamentally at the level of the heart. And so to be born again is for God in his amazing mercy to reach down into the deepest recesses of who we are, the center of your being, and to pull out a dead heart that refuses the word of the Lord, even the word to believe. And he has to put in a new heart and indwell you by his spirit in order for you even to see the kingdom of God. It cannot be found on a map. You cannot be born into it. You cannot marry into it. Being born again is absolutely necessary. Secondly, being born again is a work of the Spirit, verses 4 to 8. I mean, here's Nicodemus. He is a man who is educated. He's been to, uh, you would imagine, what is the equivalent of Bible college or seminary in his day. He's got an understanding of the scriptures. He's a smart man. He's a wise man. Jesus refers to him as a teacher of Israel. And yet, as he hears Jesus talk about the necessity of being born again, of having 
a heart that is fundamentally changed. He hears Jesus and thinks about it only on the physical level. It's, it's wonderful. I was talking to Henry about being born again this morning. He goes, being born again? You could tell the wheels were turning. How can you be born again? It's Nicodemus's question. You see what Nicodemus says, verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And here comes Jesus, verse 5. Truly, truly, I'm telling you, Nicodemus, I'm not going to hold you. This is truth. Truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel when I say you must be born again. Wind blows where it wishes, hear it sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it is going. I'm telling you, Nicodemus, Lawrence County, you've got to be born again spiritually. This is a work of the spirit. You are no more in control of your spiritual birth than you are of your natural birth. Friends, how many of you were there when you were conceived prior to your conception? Good, good. You're tracking. Now, this is a work of the Spirit. Listen to what Jesus says. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit... There is a necessity of being cleansed and being transformed. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a prophet by the name of Ezekiel who's speaking to the people of Israel. And he's speaking to the scattered people who have disobeyed the Lord. They've broken his commandments. And God has to do something about that. You understand. God never leaves sin just sort of, oh, well, Now, when sin takes place, God has to do something about that. He has to. And listen to what Ezekiel the prophet says to the people of Israel, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 27. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, if you're standing there listening to the prophet Ezekiel preach, you're terrified. God's going to vindicate his name against our sin. He's going to vindicate his holiness before the nations were were doomed. But listen to what the Lord says he will do about their sin. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. From all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, the dead heart. 
the heart that leads to broken commandments, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. How does the dead heart, the dead battery that no longer allows us to function in the way that we were made get replaced? God in his incredible mercy chooses not to judge us for our sins, but instead to cleanse us and to transform us by placing his Holy Spirit within us. That's what it means to be born again. I can remember my father when I was a young boy uh, growing up, and neither of us had yet trusted in Jesus. I remember whenever Billy Graham crusade or something, remember they would air those on television regularly. Or when someone was being interviewed on the news and they were an evangelical, my dad would say, oh, that's one of those born-againers. Like it was a special category reserved only for those who were hypocritical, whose lives had been characterized by sin and now were sort of holy rollers. And I remember before I began reading the Bible, that's the way I viewed things. But no, Jesus says every single member of the kingdom is one of those born-againers. And it is as obvious and mysterious as it comes. And we can follow Jesus. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We get that. Spirit gives birth to spirit. We get that. Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you do not hear its sound, but you know, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is. This is what it's like with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I was, last week, went home and turned on the Browns-Raiders game. Big mistake. And it was peculiar, not because they lost. That was not peculiar. It was peculiar because of the wind. So I don't know how many of you guys are from the Cleveland area, but you'll know if you are from the Cleveland area that if you go to a Cleveland Browns game at, at Cleveland Browns Stadium, right there off of Lake Erie, and the wind starts blowing, man, it's crazy. And I was watching the game, and the kickers literally were, they were lining up to kick wide right and missing field goals wide left. That's how bad the wind was. And at one point in the broadcast, they were showing all the flags, you know, the flags set up all over the, the stadium, all the flags blowing this way and that. And the, the, the commentators were talking about the fact that the wind was so intense and coming from so many different directions seemingly right off of the lake that you couldn't rely on any one of the flags to tell you how the wind was blowing. They later said Phil Dawson, by the way, Brown's leading scorer since they've come back, and he's a kicker. That, I mean, that's, that's the kind of life I live. Um, he had one flag set up in the perfect spot that you could tell how the wind was blowing. But the conversation, look at this wind. It's evident that it's here. Well, the flags are blowing violently, but we can't tell which way it's going. And that's the exact illustration that Jesus uses here. You can tell that the wind has blown, even in a, in a day before meteorologists, that you don't know where that wind is coming from or where it's going. But the point, brothers and sisters, is that it's evident. It's obvious. 
when the wind is blowing, you can tell. You might not be able to explain its origin or its final destination, but you know it's blowing. And so it is with those who've been born again. It's not a secret. It's apparent. When a dead heart is replaced by the spirit of the living God, you can tell. Otherwise, we ought not to measure conversion by how many folks walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed a card, raised a hand. I say this out of immense love. None of those things are in the Bible, not one. We ought to measure conversion the way that the Bible measures conversion, the way that the Scriptures themselves describe conversion, the way Jesus describes conversion. I can remember when I was a new believer in the apartment that I lived with young kids who were in their 20s and didn't know Jesus, a bunch of punk rock kids. You can imagine what that was like. And the most frequent question I got was, what's wrong with you? What in the world happened to you? You used to go to the places we went to. You used to drink the drinks that we drank. You used to sing the songs that we sing. And now it's all Bible, Jesus, gospel, cross, redemption. What in the world happened to you? Are you moving out? We hope you're moving out. Man, the wind blew on that guy. Something fierce. We haven't quite answered the question. How? How does this happen? We know that, that being born again is a necessity. Jesus says it's a prerequisite. We know that it's a work of the Spirit. So how does it happen? I mean, look, Nicodemus isn't stupid. There's a characterization of Nicodemus that he's just a dummy. When he asks a third time, verse 9, how can these things be? It's not that he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. It's that he doesn't believe. That's exactly where Jesus goes. It's not that you don't get what I'm saying. It's that you don't believe what I'm saying. He tells us thirdly that this being born again is connected with the Son. How can these things be? How can I be born again? I mean, the question you ought to be asking yourself as you're hearing all these things is, have I been born again? And if not, how can I be born again? How can these things be? And Jesus answers, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? I think that, take that to mean Jesus going, come on, you can't believe me. You can't expect me to believe you don't get what I'm saying. Truly, truly, I tell you, come on, Nicodemus, this is the truth. I'm not going to hold you. We speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This being born again is connected with the Son, the very Son who has descended from heaven. The one who has come down from heaven. Why should I believe what Jesus is saying about the necessity of being born again spiritually? Because Jesus, let's finish where Nicodemus started, isn't merely a teacher sent from God like one of the prophets, 
He is the one who has, asc- who has ascended into heaven and who has descended from heaven. He has come down because he's God in the flesh. That's John chapter 1, 1 to 18. Jesus is uniquely qualified to tell us about how one enters the kingdom. Believe the words of Jesus, you must be born again. This is the son who's not only descended from heaven, but the son who's been given so that whoever believes might have eternal life. He's come down not merely to testify to something, but to accomplish something. That is not a sort of diminishing of the authority and power and majesty of God's word. But it is to say that Jesus came not only preaching, but living, dying, and rising again. I want to tell you that I, I got so uh, just bored. I use that word intentionally. Bored, disinterested with the rhetoric and the conversation and frankly the politics of the last month. But I told myself last Sunday, November 1, Mike, you got to do something radical. And so I, I purposed and sort of made a, an agreement, and now that I'm going to say this out loud, I'm going to have to see it through. And so I'm going to read the Bible in the next two months, straight through. 60 days, 20 chapters a day. I'm reading the Bible. I'm putting myself in the real world. Last night, as I was finishing up my 20 chapters, I came to Numbers chapter 21. Listen to what happens in Numbers 21, 4 to 9. This is as Moses and Aaron are trying to lead the people in their wilderness wanderings. And we read in 21, 4 to 9 of the book of Numbers, from Mount Pur, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Edom wouldn't let them go through. That's Esau from Genesis, his descendants. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Typical. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. There's no food. Well, I guess there's worthless food. We just loathe it. Ungrateful. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, For we we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's as simple as seeing. And listen to what Jesus says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that's lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as those who were bitten by fiery serpents and were threatened with death in the wilderness merely needed to look at the bronze serpent. What do you mean, look at the bronze serpent? We're talking about my sin. Isn't there something I have to do? Look at the serpent. So too, the Christian gospel is 
that the way that you and I are given eternal life, forgiveness, the, the, the sign that we have been born again, is we look to the Son, lifted up on the cross, we cast ourselves purely on the mercy of God. I say, Father, I have sinned against you, and I can do nothing and bring nothing to you, but look to your Son in order to be saved. There's a brilliant story. Charles Spurgeon, my, my dear, dear friend, Tom Breimeyer, who's a professor at Spurgeon's College in London, just published a book on, on Spurgeon. Came out uh, last month, Tethered to the Cross. Brilliant, brilliant read. But Spurgeon, they say, was converted on a day when the whole city was completely covered in snow. He's walking to church. The snowstorm was so bad he had to walk into a little Methodist chapel. And the preacher who normally was in the pulpit wasn't there because the storm was so bad. And one of the men from the congregation got up and he read from the book of Isaiah, look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved. And the man was an uneducated, untrained preacher, and so he just continued to repeat the words of Isaiah the prophet, look unto me, look unto me, and be saved. It is not hard to look. Have you looked? And his eyes trained right on Charles Spurgeon, the greatest English-speaking preacher ever to live. And he says, have you looked? And at that moment, Spurgeon was born again, and he looked upon the sun, and he believed, and he cast himself upon the mercy of God, and he was saved. It's not too hard to look. I'm telling you, Nicodemus, listen to me. This is all connected with me. It's necessity. It's a work of the Spirit of God, but it has to do with me. The Spirit points to Jesus. That's how the Spirit works. I'm the Son who is descended from heaven. I'm the Son who has been given so that whoever believes might have eternal life. Just as the serpent was lifted up, so too am I to be lifted up so that everyone who looks upon me will be saved. Why? Well, here comes the beauty of John 3.16. Why is that the case, Jesus? That's merely looking at you like a bronze serpent and receiving eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, I know what it's like to grow up in a home with parents who lost a son. My parents were older when they died. And you know, when you, you, you grow up with parents who are older, there are there are a lot of jokes that get thrown around about perhaps the unintentional nature of your birth. That wasn't the case for me. No, my parents had a, a son who was killed by a drunk driver at the age of 18 before I was ever born. And I can tell you, though I never met my brother Bobby, I can tell you that that pain of loss never went away. So imagine the way that I responded when earlier this week I read this post from a Christian blogger by the name of Tim Challies. I'd commend his blog to you. Tim Challies was a friend of Parkside, used to come and blog our pastor's conferences. And on Monday or Tuesday of last week, here's perspective, folks. 
He posted something with the heading, My son, my dear son, has gone to be with the Lord. And the first paragraph reads, In all the years I've been writing, I have never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. It's hard to read as a dad. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself. My dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. It is difficult to wrap your mind around the pain of a Christian father giving his son to the God he loves. And I say that not to, not to highlight the pain, but to highlight the, the, the reverse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loved the world in this way. And the magnitude of this love has nothing to do with how big the world is. As someone has said, it has everything to do with how bad the world is. If it is that difficult for a Christian father to give his son to a good and just God... How can we even begin to imagine the kind of love from a holy God that has been rejected by sinful men and women? Looking at his enemies and saying, I love you in this way. Here is my son. He has not come to condemn the world. Verse 17 but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the gift of God, is it not? That there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, understanding that Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man came and lived a life of perfect obedience in your place, died upon the cross for your sin in your place, rose again, having passed through death, never to die again, in your place. What condemnation could there be for those who are in Christ Jesus? Whoever belongs to him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here's, here's the, the final point where the rubber meets the road. This this new birth is being born again that's connected with the Son. It's connected with the Son who is the light that has come into the world exposing darkness and sin. How can I be born again? Mike, you can't just keep barking at me that I need to be born again, especially when you've told me that I don't have anything to do with it. How is a man or a woman born again? 
the light shines, and those who run to the light have been born again, and those who flee from the light have not. It's that simple. The light shines. Those who run to the light have been born again. Those who flee from the light have not. Jesus has told us, I did not come to bring judgment, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a judgment. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus, let me tell you, I am so grateful that you're here. And I pray that there will be a day when half of our church, half of the the people in the pews will be people who have not yet trusted in Jesus. But what I want to tell you is having heard the good news about Jesus, if you remain in unbelief, I'm going to just, I don't mean to offend you, I'm just telling you the truth. The reason that you're not coming is not because you're not convinced. People don't get argued into the kingdom, guys. If you have heard the good news concerning Jesus and you remain outside of him, according to Jesus... It's because you love your sin. You are unwilling to have your sin exposed. Whoa. Let's go easy with that Jesus talk, that gospel talk. You keep shining that light my way, you might see my pride. You keep shining that light on me, you might see my greed, my covetousness, my lust, my unruliness, my hatred. Man, get that gospel light off of me. See, there's this incredible contrast here. I mean, I... It's blown away by the Bible over and over again. The the contrast, it would seem, wouldn't it? Would be at the close of, of these verses. Everyone who does wicked things, verse 20, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does righteous things comes to the light. That's a pretty clean contrast, isn't it? But that's not what John says. It's not what Jesus says. That's what people think. You go out in a shanik this afternoon and you just start talking to people. Who goes to heaven? Who goes to hell? Bad people go to hell. Good people go to heaven. Bad people hate the light. Good people love the light. No. Look at this contrast. It's brilliant. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Don't shine that on me. I don't want to hear anything about how I'm anything other than great and laudable 
I don't want to hear any Bible teaching that doesn't simply pat me on the back incessantly. Get that gospel light off of me. Well, what's the contrast? The contrast is the one who not does righteous things, but does the truth. That is, agrees with the truth, so that when the gospel floodlight shines upon my heart, I say, yes, Lord, I am arrogant. I am proud. I do have hatred in my heart. I am filled with lust. I am worthy of your judgment. I agree with you, Lord. Please be merciful to me. Please forgive me. On account of Jesus, please be gracious to me. And it's that person who's been born again. It is that person of whom it might be said that they come to the light so that it may be clearly seen, evident. There is that theme again. It's obvious that his works have been carried out in, worked in, wrought by God. It comes to the light so that it's obvious to see that the work of being born again has been carried out by God in his or her heart. So let's just be clear. When I ask you this morning, have you been born again? I'm asking you, have you with Spurgeon, with me, with a countless myriad of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, have you looked upon Jesus like that serpent in the wilderness? And have you cast yourself upon the mercy of God in such a way that it's evident? If your life isn't perfect, but it's transformed, it's evident that you long for the light of the gospel to shine upon you, that you have nothing to defend. A defensive Christian is an oxymoron. A defensive Christian operates by law and not grace. Have you been born again? Have you believed in Jesus? What is the best news you've heard this week? The best news that I've heard all week is that there is an eternal kingdom and that the only thing I need to do to qualify for entry into that kingdom is admit just how absolutely and utterly unqualified I am for it. And to look on the sun and be made new as God's people in God's place under God's rule. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it instructs us and gives us clear, clear teaching on your kingdom and what it, what it means to be a person, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who enters into that kingdom. We must be born again. There's no other option. We must be born again by a work of your spirit in our hearts. Lord, we, we pray that you wouldn't let us get caught up in 
nonsense theological discussions about that, but simply that we would look at Jesus. That we know that some, somehow, some way, this being born again is connected with Jesus. We know those who've been born again by their response to Jesus. So Lord, help us to respond to Jesus. Help us to see all that he is and all that he's done, that we might believe that he is the Son of God, the Christ, and that by believing we'll have life in his name. And Lord, I pray that as we leave from here, that those who know you, those who've been transformed by faith in you, that it would be evident, that it would be as obvious as the wind which blows. And one of the hallmarks of that obvious transformation would be our longing for the light of Jesus to shine upon us even when it hurts, even when it reveals our sin. Lord, help us to not be so busy patting our own backs that we don't raise our hands in worship of Jesus. Pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.